so God, may our worship be acceptable to you. May we be like a, a, an incense flowing up toward you. May you be pleased with us. May we run after you with our eyes set on you, not looking to the right or the left, one step right in front of the other, all of our days. Amen. Does anybody else think that Jason Watts was singing, you can have a seat, especially like channeling his cowboy boots this morning? I mean, like, that, that, that was, he was like on, man. Thanks, Jason. It was, thank you for helping us worship God. Um, well, we're in the middle of a, um, a study on one of the shortest books of the Bible, Paul's letter to Philemon or if you're British, Philemon. Uh, and uh, it's very, very short, and we'll actually read the entire thing like we did last week. Last week, we talked about radical forgiveness, and that was the point, really, of the letter. And then this week, we go to a very, I'm just going to say it's a thick, deep place into a Bible study, really, on the middle of the letter, particularly verse 6, and that's why you got a handout uh, with even verse 6 there in several translations, but we'll get to that here in a moment. Um, what is the letter about? It is about Paul writing. He's in prison, by the way. He is writing to Philemon, who apparently is a wealthy, powerful person, who has a servant, a slave named Onesimus. Onesimus has fled to Paul and uh, either became a Christian or he fled to Paul because he was a Christian. And Paul is writing to Philemon saying, accept back Onesimus, your former or current uh, servant slave. Why? And that's what we're going to talk about and dive into today. Why would he do that? And it's not as easy and as obvious as you would think. Or at least I'm going to make it a little thicker than maybe it should be. Uh, But nonetheless, we're going to dig into it. Now, what we have to understand before we read the letter We have to understand that slavery uh, in our own day, of course, is no longer acceptable. It's not a social norm. But in Paul's day, in the first century Roman Empire, around the Mediterranean back in 45 or 50 AD, when this was written, uh, it was certainly acceptable. Nobody thought anything about it. As a matter of fact, Slavery could have well been a way for you to pay off a debt. You would actually go into it voluntarily. Certainly, there was a large amount of slavery that was exactly the way we would think about it, where people were being punished and whipped and persecuted and, and you know, exploited. But there was a whole other part where it was a normal thing, and you could actually join a family as a servant or a slave as a way of belonging and actually increasing your social status because you would belong to a large household. Apparently, Philemon has a large household. Uh, they have church in his place, as you'll see here in the letter. So last week we described about how each of us has to journey into forgiving others. But this morning we're going to expand this idea of radical forgiveness and and how to properly assess and judge economics and politics and the media around us. So you ready for this? Because we're going to be talking through politics, which is such a hot issue these days. Uh, It's not going to be as crazy as I wanted it to be. So, you know, uh, I'll I'll get my licks in somewhere else. Um, but here's, here's the end game. Through this letter, I want us to create a Jesus filter 
on how to see politics and economics and the media. That's it. A Jesus filter. Here's the letter, everyone. It's there on your handout, or you can look at it on the screen. Paul, a prisoner of of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our dear friend and co-worker, to Apphia, our sister, Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church in your house. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. When I remember you in my prayers, I always thank my God because I hear of your love for all the saints and your faith towards the Lord Jesus. Verse 6. I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective when you perceive all the good that we may do for Christ. I have indeed received much joy and encouragement from your love because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you, my brother. Verse 8. For this reason, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do your duty, yet I would rather appeal to you on the basis of love. And I, Paul, do this as an old man and now also as a prisoner of Christ Jesus. I am appealing to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I have become during my imprisonment. Formerly, he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful both to you and to me. I am sending him, that is, my own heart, back to you. I wanted to keep him with me so that he might be of service to me in your place during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your good deed might be voluntary and not something forced. Perhaps this is the reason he was separated from you for a while so that you might have him back forever. No longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me. But how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord? Verse 17. So if you consider me your partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. If he's wronged you in any way or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, I'm writing this with my own hand. I will repay it. I say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. Yes, brother, let me have this benefit from you. In the Lord, refresh my heart in Christ, confident of your obedience. I am writing to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. One thing more, prepare a guest room for me, for I'm hoping through your prayers to be restored to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greeting to you. And so do Mark, Aristarchus, Damas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. There, you just read an entire book of the Bible at church. How do you feel? Yeah, you can go around and boast about that in some sort of weird, sicko way. Um, there is more to this letter than what meets the eye. It seems simple and straightforward, just a piece of personal correspondence. Like, that's nice. Make a request, Paul, to Philemon to get Onesimus, you know, back in good graces and maybe give him back his job and, you know, a place to live and all this sort of thing. Uh, I like all the little innuendos Paul's throwing in there. Like, you know... If he owes you anything, that's fine. Never mind the fact that you owe me everything, Philemon, but that's okay. We'll just not mention that, even though I did. Um, you know, and all these sort of little, shall we call them digs? Uh, there's some leverage going on between two very well-educated, very wealthy. Uh, Paul was wealthy, at least at one point. He has, you know, he's a Roman citizen. And here you have this, you can tell the, the power struggle, so to speak, or at least the sophistication of two well-to-do uh, people trying to, at least Paul, trying to get the communication done. Very interesting to read. 
Scholars love this sort of thing. So much insights into what's going on in the first century church. And we will love it too, hopefully over the next few minutes. There's more to it. Underneath this countercultural, uh, underneath this letter is this countercultural mandate, everyone. And here it is in summary. Those with power, like Philemon, those with power must be responsible to care for those who have no power, like Onesimus. Those in power must care for those who do not have a voice or have power. This is a mandate within the Christian faith. If it were in the Roman Empire, you would have Pax Romana, peace of the Roman Empire, which says, we have power, you don't, sucks to be you. You will now pay us taxes, perhaps be our slaves. We'll conscript you for, you know, to run against the enemies and put you out in the front, whatever we feel like doing to you. You have no power. We do, says the Roman Empire. So this is very revolutionary for Paul to be writing to Philemon saying, you, you should forgive Onesimus. And we kind of covered a lot of that last week. So we're going to plumb the depths then of the foundation of this mandate that says those with power have to be responsible for those without power. We're going to dig into the undercurrent of the thing. And it's, and it's heavy stuff. I'm making it heavy stuff. It sounds like it could be simple, but I don't think it is. And this is the problem is that we keep missing the depth of this. And that's why it's not effective to how we understand our day in and day out world, particularly politics and economics and the media. All right. So there's your nerd alert. Uh, I also want to, uh, Thank my fellow nerd this week, uh, Ryan Fouts. He was the guy in the purple shirt and the scavenger hunt tweets all the last couple of weeks and uh, doing the crazy stuff. And what you don't know about Ryan is that he's actually a Ph.D. candidate in theology. And we had a little bit of a lively uh, discourse this week uh, via email on the meaning of this and a lot of Greek and about me, Garrett, and a couple other people around here. Are the only, you know, and Ryan are about the only nerds who, you know, really dig into this. But now I'm going to drag you into it. Okay, so you're like, oh, boy. So, yeah, get ready for it. Here we go. Take a good hard look at verse 6. You have it on this half sheet. One half has the letter. The other half has several translations. If you had the time to study these, and maybe you've already been doing that, you'll notice slight small differences. In general, you read them and you think, like, well, they're all kind of saying the same thing. And like in one respect, I want to say, yeah, and then in another way, say, no, no, they're not at all. Translators had a tremendously difficult time trying to translate uh, the verse 6. Why? Because the Greek is difficult. It is not clear. And the Greek is the original language of the New Testament. So we're going to dig into it here a little bit because it's, it's in the hiddenness of it, not that the translators missed it, but it's in the various translations. When we pull them all together, we begin to get a little bit more clarity about what's going on. So I'm going to give you sort of Dan's amplified version of the verse. And here it is. This is sort of breaking down verse 6, and you have it in front of you, but I'm going to go ahead and dig into it. That the koinonia, and I think I've done Greek words here about three times in 20 years, so welcome to the fourth time I'm throwing a Greek word at you. I don't like doing this because it's like, hey, look what I know, and you don't, blah, blah, blah. But koinonia oftentimes makes it into a lot of church language because if you're around the church, and, you know, raise your hand if you know what koinonia means. This is just sort of a curiosity little thing. Yeah, it means fellowship, you know, and you'll even find churches called the koinonia fellowship, which is a little superfluous, but what the heck. Um, so this is a, a Greek word that we find often, this koinonia. 
The translators want you to see fellowship as in one old, uh, I think in the Catholic version, the Jerusalem Bible down there. But most of them use the word sharing. I'm going to throw in the word community or communal. It's the idea that there is something being shared, okay? There is something being gathered together about the faith. You're like, okay, I get that. That the sharing or the community or the communal acknowledgement, the, the, the thing that we do something together, Paul is telling Philemon, we have this in common. The sharing of your faith may take effect or be activated. I chose the word activated. I just made that one up. It's not in there. That somehow it has power or leverage or um, it's actuated. Okay? When you perceive or know that the good that we, and then I throw in here, possess as our identity in Christ. All this is sort of an amplification. Our problem here is this little word, in. Because more literally, it might mean unto or into. We have a terrible time in the English language having any sort of concept about the word in. It's more akin to the idea of like, are you outside the house or in the house? And in this particular context, it's not, you're not in the house, you are the house. You get it? You are one with your house. I mean, if you want to try and flesh that out. There's the depth of what's going on. And you're like, okay, well, why is all this stuff important? Hold on here. We're getting there. The, the old King James there, like I said, comes closest to the, to the best part. The good effects of your faith is in you. Christ is in you. And I'm going to say that over and over, and somehow every time I say it, it's supposed to magically you know, connect. Um, and I'm going to try and flesh it out. But it is, I can't say it any better because we're English speakers. What we have to understand is there is a difference then in the translators because they are keep alluding to and wanting to say that the faith that is effective is something that we do. And, and the, the essence of what's really going on, if you read the various translations, it's not something only that we do, it's something that we are. We are in Christ, not just people who do something because we think we believe in Christ. You get it? See, in our day and age, we think if we have knowledge that we get to make decisions about what we believe. We believe in Jesus because we have a knowledge about, you know, the cross and salvation, sin, resurrection, all that. So we think, I believe in Jesus. I made a decision to believe in Jesus. I know something, so I'm going to believe in Jesus. Paul is digging here very quickly, and in quite a shorthand, by the way, in one verse, in a letter, is saying, like, there's a lot more to it than that. And Fleeman, you know it. Because what we really have is a sharing, this effectiveness in the faith that says we are Christians. We are the gospel. We are in Christ. Not just something we believe and therefore do. Our identity, our mutual participation. It is something, it is something, I got these markers here, so I'm going to use them. Uh, it is something that we possess as our identity. No different than a leopard chooses to have spots, you and I do not choose to be Christian. A lot of our language is around, I make a decision, I decided to follow Jesus and all that. And like, that's fine. But in your soul and in your heart, in your identity, you are Christian. 
we find Paul using these words. Every time you, by the way, when you see, um, when you see this, when you're reading along in any of the letters, and you see this in Christ, every time Paul uses that, it is shorthand for saying, and I mean a whole lot more about who Christ is. When he says Jesus Christ, our Lord, or Jesus Christ, or Christ Jesus, when he puts Jesus into it, he's, he's talking more about the person Jesus. But when he says just in Christ, more often than not, he's saying, I mean the whole gospel thing I'm talking about. So you can kind of put that away in your back of your mind saying every time you're reading along in Romans or Galatians or First or Second Corinthians and you see in Christ, you look to see like what he's getting at because he's saying a huge amount. Just for instance, in Romans chapter 8, because there's tons and tons of these references where Paul just says in Christ. But if Christ is in you, he says in Romans 8, though the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. And you're like, we read that and we think we know what it says, but what he's saying is, is that if you are inside Christ, I don't know how else to put it, if you are unto Christ, if you are within Christ, then you are dead to sin. You're like, well, I thought I chose to sin or not to sin. <laughs> like, yeah, you do, but sin is no longer your master, he says. You don't belong to sin anymore. Your identity's changed. It's not our belief in the resurrection, everyone, that brings life. But rather, it is Christ in you that brings life. This is how Paul speaks of the same thing Jesus means when he says, abide in me, out of the Gospel of John, chapter 15. Abide in me. This old-fashioned word, abide. The modern translators, like the New International Version, have used remain or something like that. But the best translation would be abide, even though it's an archaic word. Uh, or other than you go for, you know, the dude abides or something like that. But Abide in me. Abide in me as I abide in you. Just as the branch cannot bear fruit in itself unless it abides in the vine, Jesus says, neither can you unless you abide in me. Once the vine gets cut, it's dead. That's why he says three verses later, without me, outside of me, you can do nothing. Oh, yes, you'll go on living like an animal and consuming and going to sleep and raising children and all of that sort of thing. But you're not doing anything that's really within Christ that's eternal. You've been cut off. You're lost. That's not the goal. And we don't decide. You don't, you don't go and get cut off from the vine and then reattach yourself. You're either, you're either connected to the vine or you're not. You're either abiding or you're not. You either get it and are in Christ or you're not. It's a state. It's your, it's your state of matter, to put it in more scientific terms. It is what you are. You are in Christ Again, Jesus' final prayer at the Last Supper in the upper room, just that night where he gets betrayed before they go off to the garden. And he's praying to the Father his last words, and here's some of his last words and prayers. I ask not on behalf of these, these disciples, but also on behalf of those who will believe in me through their word. That's us. That they may all be one, as you, Father, are in me and I in you. That they may, that they, may they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. All of this language you say like, now wait a second, Jesus. Are you praying that you and I are the same and that you are saying you're the same as God and that that means then I guess I'm the same as God? Oh, that sounds like a scary moment, particularly in light of like a first commandment that says you shall have no other gods, you know. <laughs> But yes, that's what he's saying, actually. <laughs> he's saying, if you are in me, if you abide, if you are in Christ, we are one. Am I getting this impressed upon you? 
the entire force of Paul's request of Philemon to forgive and accept Onesimus as a brother rather than just a slave is all based upon this idea of being in Christ. The good that comes out is not Philemon's choice. Though when you read the letter, it sounds like Paul is saying, I hope you decide to do the right thing. I hope you decide to accept Onesimus back. But the entire argument and letter and the appeal rest upon the fact that he's saying, this is your identity. You forgive Onesimus. You don't have a choice. Do you get the drift when you read the letter? He's not really making it sound like a choice, is he? I thought he was just kind of trying to be really forceful. But he's really saying it rests upon verse 6, what we share together. That's what he's trying to get at. So how does this play out then? Christians. Christians can no more make a decision You and I, you and I can no more make a decision, so to speak, to forgive than a leopard can decide to have spots because it is your identity in Christ. You are in Christ. Christians care for orphans and widows and the poor and the hungry and the foreigner and the oppressed and the voiceless Because it is their identity, not a choice based upon one's politics. It is what we are in Christ. Because that's what Christ did when he went to the cross and spilled his blood for you and me. The blood, that atoning sacrifice of the cross and the resurrection that follows, marks us out. Now, the author of Hebrews, this rather long sermon there in the Bible, which you got Philemon on one page, and then you got pages and pages of the book of Hebrews following. You, he's trying to explain the Jewish history. So Hebrews is great if you want to understand the Jewish history and how it fits into Christianity. And we just pick up in the middle of the whole thing. Here it is in the book of Hebrews, chapter 9, verses 19 through 22. And the author is trying to tell, help us understand that the idea of blood seals the covenant. Okay, And so here's what it says. For, and you're dropping it in the middle of a long theological presentation, so bear with it. For when every commandment has been told to all the people by Moses, when every commandment has been told to the people by Moses in accordance with the law, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and sacred wool and hyssop, which is a branch, <clears throat> and sprinkled both the scroll itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God has ordained for you. In the same way, He sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. He's setting up the case to say, Jesus, once and for all, will spill his blood for us. And you will be sprinkled and will be made right. You, the tent, the vessels, the scroll, everything will belong to you. To God. Jesus' blood gives God a title of ownership of you. 
Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Just let it soak in. Without the forgiveness, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. The spilling of blood is Jesus' work and his work alone. It is not ours. You and I cannot sacrifice ourselves and expect it to atone for anybody else. Psalm 49, by the way, makes that clear. The spilling of Jesus' blood is, is Christ's work, not ours. And as a Christian, you may not spill blood in an attempt to bring forgiveness or justice on your own. You do not have the right. It is idolatry to steal that from Christ. You cannot act like Jesus. Instead, you are covered by the blood of Christ. You are within in Christ. You may not prohibit another person food and drink. It is not yours to decide. You cannot prohibit a roof over someone's head or warmth. You may not slander or gossip or call your neighbor a fool, as Jesus says on Sermon on the Mount. If you think someone's an idiot, you have done the same as murder them, Jesus says. You don't have that right. You may not ignore the orphan or the widow or the foreigner in your land. You and I shall not celebrate the defeat of this nation's enemies, but rather pity them and pray for their souls. Who, O Christian, are you to decide who is evil and who is good, who is going to hell and who is going to heaven? We keep wanting to divide the world into those who are going to hell and those who are going to heaven. And what there really is is for the Christian is simply this. There are those we're going to spend eternity with and there are those that we hope that we would spend eternity with. What is your heart? Paul is saying to Philemon. We are Christians, everyone. We have no enemies. Only people we have to love in the name of Christ. Philemon does not choose to take back Onesimus. He's like, well, it says it right there in the letter that he does. He's hoping he does the right thing. But verse 6 is indicating that there's a foundation that says, he's a, that Paul's appealing to Philemon, saying like, you don't really choose now, do you? We share this faith. Years ago, I was listening to a lecture by Bishop Tom Wright in the Anglican Church. Uh, he lived next door to uh, Tony Blair, the prime minister at the time. So he's heavily involved in politics. And Bishop Wright is a uh, New Testament scholar, probably the most popular scholar these days because he's so articulate and writes well. And Tom Wright said this. He said, you know, in my discussions with New Testament scholars about whether or not the historicity, the, the historical evidence of the Gospels is true or not, he said it really isn't about all the scholarship. He says it really comes down to this. What are your politics? And people make decisions about their faith based upon their politics. People make decisions if they're going to stay at a church, not because of doctrine, but because of politics. People make decisions about who they're going to hang out with and whose kids they're going to play with and who's going to be their friends, not really based upon like anything of being neighborly love, but really based upon politics these days. 
Politics is the thing that's actually trumping stuff. And we've done it around here where we stack things up. Like, tell me the most important thing in your life. Oh, well, like family's down there and job's down below that, I think. And let's see, uh, church is in there somewhere. And then there's God. And then I always want to just pull out the label and put it on top. It says, yeah, well, what about politics? You see, everyone, it isn't a matter of whether or not Philemon should accept back Onesimus. The question for Paul is whether or not he will, whether Philemon will obey. The Christian life, everyone, is not hard. The beliefs that we have, Jesus died for your sins on the cross, rose again on the third day to give us new life. He's the first fruits. We all rest in that hope of eternal salvation. Hope to be with him someday. In the meantime, share it with others. That's easy. The hard part is obeying, not knowledge. That's the effective part. That's the part that Paul is appealing to to Philemon in. Will you obey your identity in Christ? You can't steal the blood of Christ and use it willy-nilly when you want and when you don't want. You don't get to choose to forgive. You don't get to choose to serve your fellow man. It is your possession as being a part of Christ. This is what Paul appeals to. And he is assuming, and the reason why the letter is so short on it, just one verse really, he's assuming that Philemon knows this, and I think he does. We never find out whether or not Onesimus got back to Philemon. Never says. And yet, it's right there. When we uh, participate in the Lord's table then, and if the servers want to come forward, uh, now's a good time. When we participate in the Lord's table in the communion in the Eucharist, the Lord's Supper, we do so as a symbol of this participation, this mutual participation we all share in the gospel, in the faith in Christ. That's why the Protestant church has two sacraments, the Lord's Supper and baptism. Both of, both of them mark out your identity. More than even just symbol and remembrance, they are things that tell us who we are. Moreover, there is one loaf and one cup and you, you tear off the piece of bread off the one loaf and dip it in the one cup to say we are one in Christ as a remembrance, as a memorial, as a way of saying participate in Christ. The symbolism is so thick that we often can't handle it and we just say, well, I'll just go up there and kind of do the, you know, run through the drill. There's so much more to it. It is a declaration of who you belong to. When we pray the prayer, Lord, give us today our daily bread. When we pray the prayer that says, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. These are not merely recommendations. These are anthems that we sing. This is who we are. They're not a new idea. They're not a suggestion. They are a part of what we are in Christ. And you cannot change it. What you can do is decide whether or not you will obey Christ immediately but you cannot change your nature.
That's what's hard about it. Would you stand with me, please? Let us stand. And with all consciousness and all thoughtfulness, pray the prayer that Jesus taught us to pray and not just run through it in some sort of rote memory drill, but actually pray it even more so as a declaration to God. This is who I am. This is who we are this morning. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And save us from the time of trial. And deliver us from evil for the kingdom, the power, and the glory are yours now and forever. Amen. And on the night when Jesus was betrayed, he took a loaf of bread. And when he'd given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup. And he says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. There it is. Do this as often as you drink it and as often uh, in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. In other words, proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes is not simply saying like, well, I'm, I'm sitting around waiting. It is a way of saying like, this is who we are. We cannot change. And we will obey. That's what it declares. And therefore, we proclaim the mystery of faith. Everyone, Christ has died. Christ has risen. Christ will come again. Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast, hallelujah, the gifts of God for the people of God. Each day, may Christ, Jesus Christ be as real to us as this food and this drink. And now, O Lord, you have fed us with spiritual food. You own us. We are in Christ. You will send us out into the world to be your hands and your feet and your eyes as though you are present because you are our present. Your spirit is with us everywhere, every one of us, all over the earth, that all the earth has heard the gospel. May we be the proclaimers of it. In the name of Christ, we all said, amen. Well, Philemon, it seems like such a harmless little letter, such a simple little piece of personal correspondence. Not much to it, right? Not really anything going on with it. Just a letter from one friend to another. And yet, here we find it in the most known and powerful text in all of human history, the Bible. Why? Because it exemplifies, it exemplifies what the Christian life looks like in a little microcosm. Right there, that's how it plays out in the daily affairs of normal Christians like Paul and Philemon and Onesimus and the rest of the people that are talked about. What shall we do in our day and age when the media, when the media, in an effort to make money for their advertisers, tells us to fear and be scared and everything's sensational? And everything is the hurricane of the century and the rainstorm of the month and 
And everything is supposed to make us so desperate and so afraid. And even fear people that don't have any money or anything and all they have is hope. And somehow Christians think they can withhold the hope of Christ and the help that they have. I don't get it. And that's me speaking as a Republican for like 30 years, most of the time. May the peace of the Lord Christ go with you wherever he may send you. May he guide you through the wilderness, protect you through the storm. May he bring you home rejoicing at the wonders he has shown you. May he bring you home rejoicing once again into our doors. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Go in peace.